3: Dear Governor is a production of iHeartMedia and Three Mutts Media. If you are moved by Jarvis Master's story and would like to support his cause, visit freejarvis.org slash podcast to sign your name to an open letter to California Governor Gavin Newsom.
1: Dear
5: Governor Newsom. Dear Mr. Governor Newsom.
6: This is an open letter to Governor Gavin Newsom. Dear Governor Newsom.
3: 1985, the year the compact disc was introduced, the year New Coke was launched, the year the Unabomber killed his first victim, and to much less fanfare or infamy, the year Jarvis J. Masters was charged with conspiracy to commit murder of a corrections officer. This story ran in the Los Angeles Times December 3rd of 1985. Three inmates have been charged in the death of a San Quentin prison guard who was killed with a makeshift spear last summer, the Marin County District Attorney's Office said. A spokesman said Andre Johnson, 21, Jarvis J. Masters, 23, and Lawrence Woodard, 39, have been charged with conspiracy and murder with special circumstances in the death of Sergeant Howell Dean Birchfield.
5: We were all convicted for conspiracy to commit murder. Johnson was committed for found guilty of conspiracy to commit murder and of actual murder of a correctional guard. Woodard was convicted of conspiracy to commit murder, but as a leader of planning the murder, which brought special circumstances to him, because he planned it, it was his orders, so he was convicted of that. And I was convicted of conspiracy and of sharpening the weapon. And they never kept that weapon because they never found it.
3: Jarvis Masters, Andre Johnson, and Lawrence Woodard were tried simultaneously before two separate juries, one for Masters and Woodard and the other for Johnson. Were you seated by your attorneys? Yeah, I had two of them. I
5: had Jeffrey Rotewein on the right and Michael Satchis on the other side and Uh, we became very, very close. They understood my predicament, they understood what kind of stuff I was into, where how stuck I am in this situation. And they said that the only way we can get you off of this, man, is that you have to tell your truth. And your truth is going to get a lot of people in trouble, you know? And I said, no. It seemed like the gas chamber is a lot further away than the exercise yard, you know. So I said, No, I'm not, that's not me. Man, you can't go snitching on people that they committed murder. They'll kill you right there on the exercise yard, right there. Boom, you're dead.
3: In prison vernacular, snitches, rats, Informants refer to inmates who cooperate with prison personnel by furnishing damaging information about other inmates, often in exchange for lighter sentences or some sort of payback, monetary or otherwise, a la one pair of notorious snitches in Orange County, California, who were rewarded with almost limitless Taco Bell runs for their information. I asked former San Quentin Warden Daniel Vasquez, what would have happened if Jarvis were to cooperate with the police and snitch on his fellow inmates?
6: They would uh, they would retaliate against you and your family. They would kill you if they got the opportunity, or or kill your, some of your family as well.
5: My attorneys were being threatened. They were being they were being threatened by the, the gang members. They were being threatened. Yeah, they were wow. being threatened. You know. They reported it. They went into the back room and reported it. I didn't know they did, but they did. Mm -hmm. Um, Saying that they couldn't represent me because they feel threatened and that they wanted to represent me in an individual case without being connected to nobody. It's me by myself, and they wouldn't do that.
3: I asked Michael Satris, one of Jarvis's attorneys during the murder trial, if he remembered threats made to the defense team.
5: We had a whole hearing and everything about that, where I think somebody was tape recording Woodard and Woodard made some threats to us. It would have been sealed, the hearing would have, because I think we made a motion to withdraw or something because, hey, we're in a conflict now.
3: Yeah, Jarvis remembers
5: that. Yeah, and so there was a whole motion around that where all the evidence of the threat and everything that the the tape recording thing was was a matter of record. And then we, because it had to do with the attorney-client relationship that nobody else had an interest in, we had a sealed hearing where we talked about it with the judge. I think I started finding out that I was in trouble when I knew I felt trapped. I knew that I knew that I needed to tell the story about me and if I didn't tell a story about me and if I did tell a story about me, it would definitely gonna implicate them, so I'm thinking, okay, if this goes any further, I'm not gonna be able to get out of this, you know because. If I try to get out of it, then it's going, implicate, it's going to implicate other people. And now I'm saying, oh my, yeah, this is, this is not good here. You know, this is not good. And I still thought up until I saw the DA making his case, he was finding things out that I never knew existed. And I'm looking at everybody saying, you know, uh, what's going on here? And people are saying, man, this is none of your business. You know, this is not, they They know it's not you. they just trying to keep you here to snitch on other people. That's the only reason why they got you here, man, is because they're going to use you to snitch on other people. So don't even worry about it. I always thought I was going to get out. I really did
3: One major misconception about the death penalty is that it's a cost-effective measure to get rid of the worst of the worst, kill them quick, and be through with it. Why waste our precious tax dollars to permit violent criminals to live out their natural lives in prison when the average execution costs less than a thousand dollars? But the truth of the matter is that it's far less expensive to imprison people for life without parole than execute them. The arduous legal process costs more tax dollars to the tune of $700,000 to a million dollars to execute someone. The reason for this disparity is due to a bunch of factors. The state often pays expenses for both the prosecution and defense. Then there's the exorbitant costs associated with pretrial and trial of capital cases, more investigative costs, the cost of court personnel for protracted cases. It's even more expensive to house capital defendants as they await their final goodbye. According to one study in 2009, the average cost of keeping a death row inmate in prison during this lengthy process was $47,000 per year and as much as $90,000. To put that in perspective, Jarvis was sentenced to death on July 3, 1990. That equates to millions of California tax dollars for just one of the more than 730 inmates on death row now. Though Jarvis is a bit of an anomaly in that the average stay on death row prior to execution or exoneration is a mere 15 years. But the math adds up to billions. Up next, Stanford Law professor Larry Marshall on the litany of failings in our capital punishment system above and beyond the excessive costs. Stanford law professor and informal advisor for Jarvis's next appeal, Larry Marshall, on our country's broken capital punishment
6: system. The issue of of arbitrariness, the issue of beyond the racial part, who gets death and who doesn't, is, as was called by the Supreme Court back in the 70s, a strike of lightning. And it seems terribly, terribly unsustainable to say that we are going to have that randomness in deciding who will live and who will die. Jailhouse informants, how many cases do we need to see? How many scandals do we need to see? Until it's recognized that this is not a trustworthy form of evidence. These are people who are selling their testimony to the highest bidder. And sort of the issue that has become the dominant one in conversation about the death penalty arises. And I left it for last in my list intentionally, because I don't want to make it sound like it's the only problem with the death penalty. But it's a huge, significant problem. And that is the problem of innocence that we have come to learn in the past couple of decades, that the confidence that we used to have in our criminal justice system is unfounded. That as hard as we try, and this goes for capital punishment and non-capital punishment, as hard as we try, profound errors are inevitable. That eyewitnesses who we used to think were the gold standard of evidence make terrible mistakes, innocent mistakes, good faith mistakes, but they make mistakes. And we know this because we can study that in laboratories. And we know that that's particularly true when you're talking about cross-racial identification. We know that what we used to think was the case, which was that if somebody confessed a crime, they must have done it. We now know from case after case after case that that simply is not true, that people, scores, hundreds of people have confessed to terrible crimes that we now know they did not commit. Why did they confess? Well, often it's because they were subject to deep emotional uh psychological interrogation that led them to do that, uh, perhaps because they thought they were going to be framed and the only way to avoid the harsher penalty would be to to to, to confess and hopefully get a deal through that. Some people, as I said, have mental illness that leads them to confess. But the idea that you wouldn't say you did it unless you did it has now been discarded. We just know it's false.
5: I know that that was the last case they heard uh, on the penalty phase portion of it, and they gave me the death penalty. Everybody thought I wasn't going to get the death penalty because those guys didn't get it. How in the world can you know, Jarvis get it? And he told me to use a sharpening weapon. Why do you think you got it? There's, there's a legal explanation for it, and there's my explanation for it. I think the legal explanation holds more ground though. My own thing was that I didn't defend myself. I did not defend myself. I did not say where I was two weeks before that happened. I did not explain my activities. I didn't do any of that. I tried my best not to let my attorney do it. Why? It was not my case. It, 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 was, it was their case. It was not my case. I didn't have nothing to, to worry about. That's their stuff. Why would I worry about this? This don't have nothing to do with me. These guys are in trouble, not me. That was my attitude. Uh, now, their explanation is this, that this jury became a professional jury. They use the word professional jury, because when you first gets jurors and they get elected, they fresh, they new, they are being guided by instructions. They're asked to listen to the evidence and the evidence is how they come to some conclusion. But you educate them, you tell them the case, you explain what's going on and how long they're going to be there. I mean, they're just so new. I mean, they come from their jobs to be here. Said in a murder trial. Okay. When they came down to Woodard being sentenced, they didn't know how to do it. They argued amongst themselves. They got into these personal conflicts, and they never was going to give him the death penalty. they, they, they it was a hung jury. Once, twice, I think, was two hung juries. They just didn't get along. And they were not, you know, it became more out of, you know, you disrespected me and you wanted me to vote this way. I'm not voting. You know, it was one of those things. So when it came to me, they all said, okay. And this is really how it happened to them. Let's get along. Let's stop fighting. And it would go faster, blah, blah, blah. So now they became professionals. They learned how to vote. To execute somebody, they did it the right way. They didn't fight. They listened. They were more listening to each other. They were respecting each other's opinions. And by the time they took a the vote, they all were on the same page. They became professionals. They learned how to kill somebody. And that's not the kind of jury you want. So yeah. that's what I yeah. think happened.
3: Before the penalty phase, do you remember the moment when you heard the jury come back and say guilty?
5: Yeah, I did. I did. I did. I remember all the guards. There was something about, you can hear this chuckle. Like, finally, yes, we got him. They were keeping themselves composed, but... You know, they all, you could hear this constant shuffle of their keys and belts, and leather stuff. They all moved at the same time all over the courtroom, you know. So it, it became real. It became real. It became real earlier that, but then it was like, okay, all right, they just found me guilty.
3: Then when they went to the sentencing phase, mm-hmm. you came back and do you remember... What they said? Did the jury stand up and the foreman tell you what you were sentenced to?
5: Yeah, they said we recommend death or something like that. This is going to be crazy here. You
6: know?
5: Yeah, I was really messed up after that. I was really, I was really messed up. I, I probably didn't show it, but. Um, when they asked me to, uh, when I looked in that magazine, i seen that, that book they had for free life and relationship to death. I he man, you better get this book, man, you know. And that's, that started a whole nother chapter of my life.
3: Prior to being implicated in the capital crime, Jarvis remembers watching condemned prisoners walk by his cell and wondering what it would be like to walk in those ill-fitted shoes. For
5: years, you know, I... I was not on death row, but I was in San Quentin. And I watched death row walk by myself many times because they were on the fifth tier. And I was down on the fourth tier. And so they were around me. And then I ended up getting it. And it was just like, this is not real, you know? You know how many times I walked across death row and I looked at people and they just looked it like, They were cattle or something, and I felt real bad because they were on death row. And and I always wanted to know what that felt like at night. The only thing that made it kind of light was that I didn't have to go nowhere. You know, I I, I, I was in the same cell. Uh, I knew people up and down the tier, you know. I had been there a couple years. So they didn't take me to this new unit or anything like that, you know. It kept me right where I was. So I just came back with a new sentence, sentenced to death.
0: When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it.
2: Listen to Season 2 of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Jarvis began writing about life on death row early into his sentence. One person who he credits for teaching him and motivating him to write about his ordeal is Buddhist writer and teacher Susan Moon. Susan Moon is
5: someone... I've been doing for a long time, and she's a writer, and she's the editor of Turning Will that I got published in so many times. When she visited me, I used to always learn from her, and when I finally got that Bird Has My Wings done, she helped from the first page to the end.
3: It was with Susan's guidance in 1992 that Jarvis won the prestigious Penn Literary Award for his unnerving poem entitled Recipe for Prison Pruno. Pruno, incidentally, is homemade, fruit-based, fermented prison alcohol, also referred to as hooch.
5: Recipe for Pruno. Susan Moon says, you know what, Jarvis, let's do something. Let me write something, and you write something that goes in between it, see what what it sounds like. And I said, all right, let's do it. So when I went back to my cell a few days later, I had got the order, the transcripts that issued my death warrant. And I was looking at this, and I was saying, wow, you know, these people got every sentence serious as hell. I said, wow, this is like... You know, you will be put under this. You will remain there saying quitting until you put to death. And I'm thinking, man, this is James Cagney type movie stuff, you know. So I looked at it and looked at it. And at the same time, I had a big old batch of Bruno under the bed. You know, it was ready to. So I looked at both of them and I said, you know what? I'm going to see if I can write the same thing Susan showed me how to do it. All right? So I took one, I took the transcripts off the court order, my death sentence court order, and I knew how to make pruno. So I wrote pruno and I had the transcripts and I said, okay, this is how you make pruno. This is what you got. Now, this is how, see what Susan, remember what Susan Moon did, right? So I did this and I did that I did this. And I started reading, I said, well, this is pretty good. I get this, and I get that. I said, oh, man, this is starting to scare me now. You know, I'm getting ready to get executed, and I need a drink. In
3: 1999, actor and social rights activist Danny Glover read Jarvis's award-winning poem at a convention called Doing Time, organized to celebrate prison writers. Here he is, intertwined with Jarvis's own recitation of Recipe for Prison Pruno.
4: Recipe for prison prunel. Take ten peel oranges, Jarvis Masters. It is the judgment and sentence of this court one eight ounce bowl of fruit cartel. That the charged information was true, squeeze the fruit into a small plastic bag. And the jury having previously on said date and put the juice along with this mesh inside, found that the company shall be deaf. Add 16 ounces of water and seal the bag tightly. And this court, having on August 20th, 1991, place the bag in your sink, denied your motion for a new trial, and heat it with hot running water for 15 minutes. It is the order of this court that you suffer death Wrap towels around the bag to keep it warm for fermentation. Said penalty to be inflicted within the walls of San Quentin. Stash the bag in your cell undisturbed for 48 hours. At which place you shall be put to death. When the time elapsed. In the manner prescribed by law. Add 40 to 60 cubes of white sugar. The date later to be fixed by the court in warrant of execution.
5: Six teaspoons of ketchup.
4: You are reprimanded to the custody of the warden of San Quentin. And heat again for 30 minutes. To be held by him pending final. Secure the bag as done before. Determination of your appeal. And stash the bag undisturbed for 72 hours. It is so ordered. Reheat daily for 15 minutes. In witness thereof. After 72 hours. I have. Hereon set my hand as judge of the superior court
5: with a spoon skim off the mash.
4: And I have caused the seal of this court to be affixed thereto. Pour the remaining portion into two 18-ounce cups. May God, May God have mercy on, have mercy on your, on your soul. soul. 1992, California State Prison, San St. Would
5: Danny be saying one verse of it and I'll be saying the other? Uh huh, uh huh. I would love Danny to be making the Pruno, but logically it doesn't fit. But (laughs) I was just cracking a joke to seeing Danny, you know, making Pruno in the cell. (laughs) Danny Glover. That is pretty (laughs) pretty funny. (laughs) You have 60 seconds remaining. So annoying. (laughs) We start talking and. And it gets all interrupted constantly. Yeah, all the time. I do not like that lady. I don't like her Um, either. Yeah, and she's been on my nerves for many years.
3: (laughs) As we were wrapping the production of this episode, I received an email notification from the Supreme Court of California regarding Jarvis's habeas corpus appeal. And it read, Notice of forthcoming opinion to be filed in three days so the untenable wait is over. I asked Jarvis how he is feeling about the outcome.
5: The greatest fear I could ever imagine walking out of here after all these years, looking, looking for where I belong in this big old place.
6: Will the
3: court reaffirm Jarvis's death sentence, exhausting his final state appeal? Next week, we'll bring you the news and what that will mean for the future of Jarvis's life. Today's episode was written and produced by Donna Fazzari and myself, Corny Cole. Our theme song, Sentenced, is compliments of the band Stick Figure from their album Set in Stone. Stu Sternbach has composed the original music, Nate DeFort did the sound design. Visit FreeJarvis.org to find out more about Jarvis's case and to sign your name to our Dear Governor Newsom petition. And if you have questions for Jarvis, please leave a message on our hotline at 201-903-3575. That's 201-903-3575. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.